Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, Executive Editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Once existing only in the realm of science fiction, artificial intelligence has now evolved to be part of the everyday. We see AI springing up on social media platforms, in our workplaces, our education systems, even our homes. ChatGPT has both captured popular imagination with its novelty and exhumed core fears around technology, that it may supersede our control, that it may bring greater harm to an already darkening world. And while computers have been inseparable from our modern way of life for decades now, we find ourselves in the midst of a new technological zeitgeist, one of consumer AI, in which no set direction, no definable goal, no boundaries yet exist. As we open to these new technologies that reach beyond our own capabilities and intelligence, what might become possible? This week, we reshare my conversation with artist, writer, and technologist James Bridle who questions our fundamental assumptions about intelligence. As they interrogate where AI models originate from and who they serve, James advocates for decentralized technology and knowledge systems in the hope that we might redistribute power and agency among all beings. Acknowledging the correlation between our narrow definition of intelligence and what our technologies look like, they wonder how an embrace of the unknowable and the unpredictable in our technology might in fact allow us to widen our thinking beyond the human-centric and step deeper into the mystery and intelligence of the living world. In your latest book, Ways of Being, you explore the many types of intelligence that exist in the more-than-human worlds, intelligences that we need to learn from and integrate into our consciousness and technologies if we are to learn to live in balance with the living world. And that for far too long, at least in our dominant Western society, we've had a very limited definition and understanding of intelligence that you describe in the book as what humans do. And that this definition has played a profound role in shaping technology and how we use it, from computers to most recently artificial intelligence. Can you talk about this human-centered definition of intelligence and its impact on technology and AI? So... I, I come to this sphere, to this area, to this thinking uh, from a background in technology. That's mostly what I've worked on for the last decade or more. And a little bit of that focus, kind of running throughout it, has been on artificial intelligence. And in the last few years, I've tried to kind of consciously reframe my practice around more ecological interests while seeing what I could bring from what I know about already. And so the the cultural dominance of AI seemed like a really interesting thing to to think through particularly as in myself and in my own life, I was starting to broaden my own interests and start to pay more attention to the things around me. And intelligence was an interesting place to start. I I knew setting out on doing this that I would have to, at some point, as, as a writer about intelligence, define what I meant by intelligence. But I was very frustrated by the by the lack of what seemed to me to be like clear, good definitions of what it is we were all talking about. Um, you can get all these kind of lists 
of what people mean when they talk about intelligence. And it's a kind of grab bag that changes all the time of different qualities, things like planning, counterfactual imagining, or you know, coming up with scenarios, theories of mind, um, tool use, all these different qualities. People kind of pick from them kind of according to whatever their particular field is, but they all come from a human perspective. And that seemed to me to be what actually united almost all our common discussions about intelligence was it was just whatever humans did. And so all our discussions about other potential forms of intelligence, other intelligences that we encountered in the world or intelligences that we imagined, they were all framed in terms of how we understood ourselves and our own thinking. And it really struck me that this became a, um, an incredibly limiting factor on how we were thinking about intelligence more broadly, and not just intelligence, really, of all relationships that we have in the world that are so often mediated by our own intelligence. And on the one hand, this, this has restricted our ability to recognize the intelligences of other beings, and I think we'll probably come to that, but it's also deeply shaped our, our history of technology, and, and particularly AI. What I find fascinating about AI is its cultural weight, the fact that we just seem to be so endlessly fascinated with it. And this goes all the way back, you know, really long before the development of modern computers, but really takes off with the development of what we now call computers in the kind of 1940s and 1950s. It goes right back to Alan Turing and the kind of definition of the early computer when he's already talking about how intelligent they might be. And then it extends all the way through the last kind of 60, 70 years of research when there's always this tendency to take whatever the current form of computation is and extrapolate it into what it might be if it was intelligent. And so we're always trying to build these intelligences. But what we think intelligence is really, really shapes that. Um, and all the different ways we've tried to build AI over the years have always been shaped by that definition of human intelligence. And increasingly, that's looked damaging and dangerous for, for all the ways that I explore in the book. You challenge the notion that AI is actually artificial in the book and that rather than only embody the what humans do form of intelligence, that it has the capacity to help us expand our definition of intelligence. And you ask the question, what if the meaning of AI is not to be found in the way it competes with or supersedes or supplants us? What if its purpose is to open our eyes and minds the reality of intelligence as something doable in all kinds of fantastic ways? many of them beyond our own rational understanding. Tell me more about this other purpose of AI. Yeah, so the, the more I thought about AI, as I said, I started to like really understand it as something that was an incredibly limited vision of what intelligence was, right? In particular, I focus in on what I call corporate AI, or a vision of intelligence that mirrors the corporate model of intelligence, uh, which is something that's incredibly combative, acquisitive, extractive, profit-seeking that seeks always to kind of dominate and control and, and increase its own power. That's the model of a corporation, but it's also the model of most of the AI that we're building because that AI is being built by corporations in its own image. So most of the AI we have at present is this incredibly narrow definition. Yet at the same time, uh, over the last decade, science in general has started to recognize the other ways in which non-human beings are intelligent. And so you have this strange kind of parallel process occurring. On the one hand, you have the human cultural obsession with artificial intelligence. And on the other hand, you have this growing awareness of all these other things that are starting to look a lot like intelligence to us. 
And something crossed over for me when I understood that being a very narrow definition of intelligence, but also the increasing strangeness of that intelligence as it manifests in the world. So the, the latest, one of the key things about a lot of the latest forms of AI is that they're quite obviously not like human intelligence, right? They're, they're doing things in, in systems called things like deep learning, which are kind of inscrutable to us. They're not um, understandable in terms of human cognitive processes. And yet they are clearly doing intelligence things in quite narrow domains. And so it strikes me, struck me very clearly that while we've always insisted on the primacy of our own intelligence and always intended to build AI consciously as a model or a mirror of human intelligence, the fact that it's actually turning out to be something quite different should tell us something quite important, which is that there are multiple ways of doing intelligence. And of course, if there's more than one way of doing, human, of doing intelligence, the human way and this AI way, then of course, there are an infinite many more ways of doing intelligence. So for me, what AI does, or these kind of realizations about AI, is open up uh, a window to thinking about all the many different forms of intelligence that intelligence could take. And there's a lot of um, interesting precedent, I think, for this in technological history. Uh, one of the examples I use a lot is the, um, the development of, of network theory as a result of building the internet. When we started to build the internet, it was a very ad hoc kind of process. People just started connecting computers together and then building these protocols laid on top of them that would allow the computers to communicate. But these systems started to build up that were unlike any systems that we'd seen before. In particular, we were building what we called a scale-free network, where all of the nodes in the network seemed to have a kind of equal weighting. It didn't matter how many connections, inputs, outputs they had. You could take them out, replace them, you could cut bits off. The network would kind of heal around them in an entirely novel way, in a way that we hadn't encountered before. And one response to this was the development of a new branch of mathematics called network theory, um, which modeled this way in a different method to kind of previous types of kind of mathematical topology that looked at kind of networks. So we developed this entirely new way of understanding how a network might function. And it was only at that point that retrospectively, that mathematics was applied to forest networks to the networks of trees and mycelium uh, that we now know are kind of communicating at all times in the forest. Now, those networks are not the same thing, but it seems really crucial to me that we needed to build a kind of model in technology for ourselves in order to develop the mental models, the metaphors, really, for seeing this thing existing in the natural world. And it feels to me that possibly that is something that's happening with AI. The more we build these kind of model toy intelligences, the more we build a potential understanding of all kinds of intelligences. We have this kind of solipsistic need to, to build it ourselves, to kind of put the pieces together. In fact, a really understandable urge, I think, before we can start to recognize the broader processes in the world around us. There is a term you use in the book that I really love and that you say we need to discover, ecology of technology. I wonder if you could unpack this term and share how it offers an alternative to a technology based on human exceptionalism. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at the, the history of most sciences over the last 100, 150 years, there's been a, a, an ecological turn within all of the sciences. Every science seems to have sort of discovered its own ecology in turn. It starts out as a very kind of narrow field looking at one particular specialism. And as it develops, it starts to 
recognize that actually it's a matter of interconnections, it's a matter of relationships, that the things that matter within any particular discipline are really the ways in which it interconnects with other bodies of knowledge and other ways of knowing the world. And this is a thing that says happened to every discipline. It's not just a kind of biological or natural sciences thing. This happens within mathematics. It happens within sociology. It happens within physics. Um, slowly, as fields expand, uh, when they're at their best, they become interdisciplinary um, about learning from other disciplines. Uh, they become ecological. And they also become you know, potentially more aware of their connections to the world, their social and political responsibilities. I think those are a key part of this kind of ecological thinking as well. And as I put it in the book, it feels like technology, computer science, related disciplines, are kind of the last discipline to discover that ecology. There's a deep bias within technology, uh, within computational studies, within the whole field, towards a kind of solipsism, towards a, a deep abstraction, an assumption that what is happening here belongs you know, entirely in the realm of mathematics, in kind of cold ones and zeros, in an entirely kind of constructed universe that separates itself from the world. But we know this not to be the case. We know this at a kind of practical level, and we know this at a, at a social, physical level. At the very physical level, you know, our machines are built out of the earth. They're made of materials extracted often violently from the earth in, in multiple ways and increasingly troubling ones. They also continue to affect the earth in very, in very important ways. We, we tunnel through the earth, we bore into it to lay our cables, we build these huge data centers on top of it, which contribute vast amounts of kind of greenhouse gases and other pollutants. Um, so they are engaged materially with the earth. And we're also increasingly aware that this technology shapes our societies in incredibly powerful ways. We live in a, a technologized civilization uh, that is entirely dependent upon these technologies, but also through the ways it imagines our society, shapes it in really important ways. And this really has only just been a, mostly a subject of criticism of technology, right? It's, it's barely even started to acknowledge this. This is a kind of position that's largely just put forward by critics of the field. Um, and so it, it, I think we're still awaiting a, a real ecology of technology, a, a way of thinking, building, making technology that actually takes this into account from the beginning and starts to acknowledge the fact that technology is as connected as anything else to, to the world around it. You wrote that part of your hope with the book is to help destroy the idea that there is only one way of being and doing which deserves the name intelligence, and even perhaps that intelligence itself is part of a greater wholeness of living and being that deserves our wider attention, one that isn't easily classifiable, defined, and by its very nature challenges hierarchy, that there are no single answers or single questions. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in that statement, which is summing up quite a lot of pieces. But I mean, you know, one of the things I do in the book, and probably the most joyous part of it, is just to explore what some of those other forms of intelligences look like. Um, you know, the, the incredible abilities of everything from kind of cephalopods to slime molds, everything from our closest relations, other kind of apes, simians, all the way out to creatures that we can kind of barely imagine, that in all kinds of strange ways demonstrate forms of intelligence that once you're prepared to pay attention to them, and that's really, really key, once you're prepared to like admit the possibility of their intelligence, it becomes almost instantly undeniable. And so the project really then is to, is to integrate that awareness into our lives. But what I learned also by, by thinking about those forms of intelligence is a kind of parallel realization of, of the intelligence that I was talking about, the intelligence that I'm interested in, is really not an intelligence that just happens inside the head. Right? It's an intelligence that's situated in the world. 
I think a good example for this I always use for, for humans is, is the fact that you can go to a place and have a memory related to that place or extract some kind of information that you would not have been able to do or think or recall without visiting that place, right? So our, our memory and intelligence is linked to the physical world beyond our bodies. We can also think of it as simply the fact that we can come up with ideas, uh, we can have conversations that, that go places in conversation with others, that intelligence is a kind of mutual thing, a thing of relationships. And that that relational nature of it can happen between all different kinds of bodies. And it happens differently depending on the body that you're in. My favorite example of, of this kind of embodied intelligence actually is, is one that's quite close to the human, which is the gibbon. Famously, for, for, for decades now, we've been doing all these weird tests on animals to try and basically decide who gets to join the intelligence club. And they're all modeled on, of course, how humans do things. So an absolute classic one is, is tool use. Can you kind of give an animal a tool and see if it reacts in a particular way? Like, does it use that tool to achieve some kind of goal? They did these tests for decades on other primates. And most of them do mostly what's expected in various ways. If you give uh, a gorilla or an orangutan or a chimpanzee a kind of stick and leave some food outside its enclosure, it will use that stick to get the food. Critically, for, for decades, gibbons didn't do this. They just seemed fundamentally uninterested in the task at hand, essentially. And this posed a real problem for, for the scientists kind of studying them because it basically implied that gibbons weren't as smart um, as, as a bunch of other of their kind of close relatives on the evolutionary tree, including us, but also including animals like baboons and, um, and macaques, other monkeys, that we understood to have kind of evolved earlier. And it was only when the, the framing of this experiment was changed, what happened was the one time the experimenters basically hung these sticks from the ceiling of the gibbons enclosure, and immediately the gibbons reached up, took the tools, and used them to get the food. Because gibbons are brachiators, um, they live most of their time in the trees, and so they have a body pattern and an awareness that's kind of upward focused. And so it was only when we created a situation in which they would employ their form of intelligence were we able to recognize it as a kind of intelligence that we would recognize that's a a definition of like our own blindness to other forms of intelligence but it also really emphasizes this embodied nature of intelligence that i'm talking about that intelligence it matters what kind of body you're in to what kind of intelligence you have and also the recognition of intelligence is this relational process that allows us to make meaning out of it and to relate to one another by understanding it as something that emerges out of relationships. There's a lot of fear around AI with people like Elon Musk, for example, saying things like it's uh, summoning the demon, which is a term you used in the book, and that it could destroy us partly because it could become unknowable and uncontrollable and thus dangerous, which you could say lies at the core of many of our fears about technology and historically the broader physical world. And in the book, you challenge this equation between the unknowable and the dangerous, and that we need to embrace the unpredictable or unknowable, which would have broad implications, not just for our relationship with technology, but perhaps could help shift our relationship to the more than human world and become very humbling as we recognize we're not really as in, as in control as we think we are. Yeah, I mean, it's really worth maybe casting back a little bit some things that I've written about before. So before this book, I wrote another book called New Dark Age, which was more centrally focused on, on technology. 
And one of the things that I investigate in that book quite intensely is this, this situation of unknowing. The fact that we exist just at the technological level in the middle of very large complex systems that we do not fully understand and that no one person can fully understand. They're, they're of a scale and complexity that they are inherently kind of mystifying to us. We will never fully understand their operations. And that is or can be a very frightening place to be um, because it reduces our agency, makes our every kind of action within that system deeply precarious. Um, what I realized in, in writing Ways of Being was that a lot of that unknowingness that I, that I was writing about, that kind of gap in our awareness, was also present in the natural world in more interesting and kind of useful ways. Uh, in New Dark Age, I, I made the case that we also need to trust that unknowing to some extent, because it's a, it is a decentering of the human. It's a necessary admission that we can't, in fact, know and control everything. Because one of the greatest causes of misery of the present is the overriding desire on the part of some to control the world, to control everything they can and, and thus to profit out of it. That's a demand for domination. And that's at the root of most human evil, um, I would say. And so an admission that we cannot control everything and, and we cannot know everything because knowing itself is always a form of control, a form of domination, is a necessary step in acknowledging that we are not at the center of things, that actually we belong to a, a more than human chorus, that if we are prepared to listen to rather than to know in this aggressive fashion, we can actually live alongside uh, more hopefully. And I, it's very telling to me that the, the greatest uh, kind of jeremiads against the dangers of AI come from these people who are actually making it uh, and making huge amounts of money out of it. Because of course, they are the people who have the most to lose if this kind of terrifying AI vision that they have would take over. But really, it's, it's more of a kind of like a psychological insight into the way that they see the world, because they can only imagine other intelligences as being as dominating as they are. They can only imagine intelligence as being the urge to dominate and control. And if the one thing one learns by looking at the intelligences of non-humans, and in fact of non uh, rich people uh, in many forms, is that that is not the only way to be intelligent in the world. You talk about how the computational environment and the natural one are perhaps not as distinct and separate as we might imagine, and that acknowledging that the computational environment exerts a transformative influence upon us in a similar way as the natural world once did could allow us to realize several important things. One, that this influence matters. Two, that the computational environment is continuous with the natural one. And three, that acknowledging the reality of our technological landscape in which we're embedded might allow us to reimagine our relationship with the biosphere. Could you talk about this and about this reimagining? Yeah, once again, that's a, that's a concatenation of quite a, a, a lot of kind of points into one, but I'll try and, I'll try and back it up a little bit. That's a big um, question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's the one that I'm, I'm sort of, you know, trying to answer in the book, you know. Um, again, it's this, we, we, we live inside this myth of kind of technological superiority that is predicated in large part on the separation of ourselves from the environment, as though those are two entirely separate things. And the myth of technology supports that um, because it tells us that we can become kind of autonomous from the environment. That's really so much of the, you know, 
mostly unconscious, but often conscious intention of the way that we build technologies is is to separate the human from the environment in, in so many ways. And that goes for non-digital technologies, you know, most of the clothes we make and, and all these practices that we engage in all the time, they also have similar things, but, but technology or network technology, modern high technology, takes it to the kind of cognitive level um, where, where it says that, you know, we can, we can think and live entirely separate from the world around us. Um, and as I said, in, in, in talking about the way that technology actually operates as, a, as, a, as something that is embedded in the world and implicated in it in so many ways, that's an illusion. Um, and it's, it's an illusion we really need to break with. You know, my, my, one of my kind of operating principles of my work at all times is that we have all of these metaphors in our heads of the ways in which we relate to the world. And what I try and do is I try and unpick some of these dominant metaphors to show how they actually considered another way, allow us a kind of different access to the world around us. Um, so every time we build some kind of tool that is intended to separate us from the world, I always feel that if you kind of parse it slightly differently, it actually reveals within itself this kind of constant reinforcing reconnection to the world. You, you spoke about Alan Turing earlier and his um, influence on the development of modern computing. And it was interesting because I, I learned this in the book, which I didn't know before, which was that the same time that Alan Turing developed uh, what became known as the Turing machine in the 1930s or the automatic machine, which as I understand it is given instructions and tasks that it completes or computes, which has become the basis of modern computing. At the same time that he did this, he developed a different kind of idea for a machine, which he called the Oracle machine. Could you talk about these two different machines and why the Oracle machine might be so relevant to us now? Yeah, it's just so endlessly fascinating to me to go back right into the, the moment of birth of the modern computer and see laid out right in a couple of Turing's original papers, this entirely alternative vision that was almost never followed up in any way. And so what happened was when Turing first describes what we now know today as the Turing machine, which he called the automatic machine, um, he leaves kind of hanging an alternative vision. So what he describes, and it's really important to understand that what, what we call the Turing machine, and he called the automatic machine, is almost all computers today, like 99.9999% of computers today um, uh, your, your laptop, your phone, the computer we're talking through now, the, the ATM, the flight control system, even the biggest supercomputers in the world, they're all Turing machines. Um, and they're all one type of machine. Uh, they're one possible way of thinking the world. And Turing called it an automatic machine because it's simply a machine that acts out a step-by-step -step process. It does whatever you tell it to do in Turing's words. And so that also makes it a kind of closed system, right? That it just takes a set of instructions and it steps through them and it has very little awareness of, of anything else outside the world of its own programming and the set of its controls. But at the same time as he defined the automatic machine, Turing also mentioned incredibly briefly this thing called the Oracle machine. He literally says, like, uh, we will not say anything about the Oracle machine except, of course, that it cannot be a machine, which is an incredibly brilliant kind of paradoxical statement. Um, but what, what the oracle is, the oracle is, is, is literally something else communicating with the computer. 
So it's saying like, instead of just having an automated machine, this completely self-contained computational object, a, a kind of tiny set of instructions in a box, you have something that is capable of communicating with the wider world, not just communicating, but listening to it, taking some kind of prompt from it. And this is the kind of computation that was subsequently explored by uh, fields like cybernetics, various kinds of robotics, basically computer systems that tried to look to the world around them to understand something. My classic example of an Oracle machine is a, quite appropriately a, a random number generator. It's one of the real problems of computer systems is that they can't generate true random numbers because, of course, they're just stepping through this set of automatic processes and you can't create randomness, i.e. something completely unexpected, by going through a set of programmed expected steps. And random numbers are really necessary. Uh, they're needed for kind of cryptographics, for, for credit card transactions, for example. Uh, they're needed for lotteries, for example. And lottery machines have come up with all kinds of weird ways of um, generating randomness. There's a reason they still use those kind of ball juggling machines. Um, but they also do other things. There's, a, there's a, a series of British computers for picking lottery numbers that used uh, neon tubes. So you connect the computer up to a, a neon tube and you measure the electrical flux within that tube because that tube is connected to the universe. The, the flux, electrical flux within the gas in that tube is affected by particles, radio particles passing through, cosmic particles coming through the space. You, you've connected the computer to the universe and it's listening to the universe to tell it something that it can't do from a step-by-step -step process. That's an oracle machine, right? It's a computer that acknowledges its connection to the universe, to the world around that. And for me, that's a kind of refutation of everything we've built into almost all the computers that we have, because it shows the way in which all the computers that we have, and thus the world that those computers have contributed to building is blind in all these crucial ways to the, the truth of the world, uh, that the world is composed of interrelationships, that the world is more than human, more than human intelligence, and that it is a, an ecological world. Uh, computers have ignored that, most of them, since the foundations of computation. And that's one of the big reasons we have the kind of world that we have. But as I wrote in the book, and, and as Turing kind of suggested all those years ago, an entirely different form of computation is possible. And also through my thinking and through, as we said, this fact that the technological is actually continuous with the rest of the world. Another kind of thinking is possible for us as well. Computation has come to define the way that we think. You know, we think so much like computers today because they've kind of defined what is thinkable. And so for me, rethinking the computer rethinks what is computable and therefore rethinks what is thinkable at all about the world. You know, it makes us blind, but it also leads to violence. And you talk about this in the book, um, especially the reduction of the beauty of the world as a form of violence and how numbers and data contribute to this. And this has obviously in turn led to exploitation and destruction. And part of this happens when computers make models of the world, which of course makes it abstract and then distant. C can you talk about this? and how we could move away from this uh, violent abstraction and model for machines? Yeah, so, I mean, it's again another of these properties of things like the Turing machine, um, well, like, like all computers, essentially, is that they think the world in ones and zeros. Um, they think the world digitally. Um, and the world is not digital. The world is analog. And I don't mean that in terms of, like, you know, fuzzy records versus, you know, uh, clean mp3s or something like that uh, though there is a corresponding kind of reduction in quality but this is not some kind of nostalgic appeal 
It's simply the fact that the world is not divided into ones and zeros. And when you try and put everything into ones and zeros, something is lost. What, what, what happens in between those ones and zeros is lost. And the result of that is a deep violence because what is lost is either erased or it's kind of violently suppressed because then you're started to act in the world according to the model that the computer provides. And you try to make the world more like the model. We are model building creatures. Uh, it's the way kind of our consciousness operates, um, that we're continually building a model of the world and essentially trying to make the world more like our, the model and the model more like the world. It's what's called being normative. Uh, we kind of try and get those models to converge. But those models don't really converge. And one of them is digital and one of them is, is analog. Or one of them is internal to a machine and the one of them is the world itself. And so a huge amount of violence is, is the kind of result of that. It was a, a violence that's you know, as much to our own ability to think as it is to the external world. And you know, there, are, there are alternatives to this, to this way of thinking uh, and looking at the world. You know, one thing I explore in the book quite extensively is this idea of kind of analog computing. Um, the the point zero 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 one percent of computers that aren't Turing machines are incredibly fascinating and diverse. Um, so an example of an analog computer, uh, one of my favorites that I first encountered in the Science Museum in London when I was a small child, is a thing called the Moniac. Uh, the Moniac is a, is a computer, and it's a computer for simulating the British economy, and it's made largely out of water. It's the size of a big fridge, a refrigerator, and it has a tank of water at the top and various kind of pipes running down it. And then there are kind of buckets marked things like uh, personal savings, public spending, uh, tax revenue. And then there's kind of lots of little taps, little valves that you can turn to tune things like various tax rates, the quantity of input, imports and exports. What is flowing through this computer is not uh, ones and zeros, but is water. And, and it's this beautiful in action of a, a bunch of kind of economical metaphors, really, you know, we hear about the kind of the fluidity of markets and these kind of things, uh, because, because they are qualities, uh, e even as much as the market itself is a kind of inhuman abstraction, it does reflect the, this, this, the flow of the world itself, this kind of chaos that it, that it presents. And it turns out that this, this computer that was built, the Moniac, modelled this better than any other way that had been developed at the time. It was originally built as a teaching tool at the London School of the e Economics, but it proved to be so successful at modelling the economy that actually they built versions and used them in government departments to actually develop budgets and so on and so forth. Well, there's a point in there that's very critical for thinking about how we make technology, which is about making things that are legible, um, because you can stand in front of that machine and you can understand how it works. And that's not true of most of the machines that we built. And so there's something very powerful in, in, in having access to a technology that, where you can literally see how it works and that changes how you interact with it. And that's a very rare experience these days. But also I think it's really important because it is a non-binary computer. It is a computer that recognizes the chaos and flux of the world uh, rather than trying to um, split it and condense it and um, reduce it uh, to a kind of lesser representation of ones and zeros. And you can also do it you know, more extensively, something that more explicitly connects with the world, which is where a discipline like cybernetics comes in. Cybernetics has taken many forms, but one of its core understandings is that cognition, the brain, intelligence is not a static thing. It's something that is performed and done in the world and responsive to the world. Um, and so it's something that's changeable and flexible and that evolves over time. And that kind of evolution, that kind of flexibility is something that um, 
natural systems are capable of doing in ways that technological systems really have never been and probably never will be if they are entirely constrained and contained within boxes. But by connecting these systems to larger non-mechanical, non-human systems, you can bring in some of that kind of awareness and thinking. And some of the stories I tell in the book are about people like Stafford Beer, who built attempts at computers involving kind of ponds and tiny marine organisms and kind of tried to get them to interact with complex computer systems as a way of counteracting this kind of conservative, constrained impulse of digital computation. You offered so many interesting examples of ecological machines. And you also, though, broke down what you propose as a better way to approach creating machines. And you mentioned, you know, non-binary. But you also talk about the importance of decentralized systems and unknowing, which is related to randomness. Could you unpack the importance of non-binary, decentralized, and unknowing-based systems and uh, what these would offer? I mean, this is really a kind of a response to the way that I've come to understand how our contemporary computational systems operate, which is that they are centralizing binary and based on systems of domination and control. And so the the way in which we build computers today is, is largely centralizing. Uh, it centralizes power within certain computer systems, and those certain computer systems are owned by large corporations or nation states. And so the effect of most of our technology at present is to give power to the already powerful, not just by not just by centralizing that power, but also centralizing the knowledge of how that power operates, so that very, very few people, as I said before, really understand how the things that we use every day actually work. And that's incredibly dangerous because it means you know power is handed over to a very small part of society that operates and owns these systems. And our agency, the, the agency of everyone else, is kind of massively re- reduced because we can only do the things that are kind of permitted to us by these systems which are controlled by other people. And so that that centralization, which is kind of part and parcel of most of the way that we build technological systems today, is incredibly damaging. So the first principle I have is a kind of more just and equal ways of thinking about building technologies is decentralization, which means both spreading the the tools of computation as kind of broadly and widely as possible. Um, uh, and, and of course, education then is, is a huge part of this. Any technological problem at sufficient scale is really a political one. And the, the political problem of decentralization is largely one of education. It's not enough just to kind of turn these tools over to people. We also need to uh, have an education process, hopefully a, a kind of collaborative one, in the use of those things so that people can imagine them anew. But a couple of examples of kind of decentralized technology that I always come back to uh, are things like... Um, well, something like the open source movement, the, the movement within programming that basically allows anyone to read the source code of programs, which sounds like an obvious thing to do, but actually is not how most software is produced. Most software is proprietary. You don't know how it works and you can't know how it works because you can't see the source code. And um, by opening that up, you allow people to understand how the things around them work, uh, but you also decentralize the knowledge of how that's worked. And because being able to see the code is also a way of learning not just about that particular piece of code, but of how all code functions. You're kind of decentralizing a much broader understanding and literacy. And of course, that decentralization is a a political act. You're you're spreading the power then, literally, among more and more people. 
you know, the, the old web that we used to use, you could always view the source code. You, could, you still can see the source of some web pages, but most of the operation of the internet now is basically closed source. You can't look at the view source of a website and see how it works anymore because that's not how the web works by design of the powerful. So that centralization process is still ongoing, even through something as apparently decentralized as the web, which has become incredibly centralized. The second thing is, is this question of non-binariness. As I said, binary computation is the way we've come to think all computation should be, and hence all thinking. It lies behind so much of our construction of society and thus also of the constructions of hierarchies within those societies. Because when everything has to be assigned a role within a binary system, the relationships between things in that system become immediately hierarchical because there's no other way to differentiate them between them. And so an insistence upon the non-binary-ness of our thinking as a result of the possibilities of non-binaryness within com computation changes our relationships to everything uh, within, a, within our own society and species towards things like gender and sexuality, crucially, um, but also towards all other relationships between with people, but also relationships towards the world. I, you know, there's a big part of the book in which I talk about how our notions of things apparently as big and heavy and weighty and historical as species are really starting to fall apart. You know, our understanding of even how um, species are, are separated through evolutionary processes has come under incredible sustained attack within the last kind of you know few decades as we come to understand things like um, horizontal gene transfer, uh, viral genes transfer, the fact that DNA does not only get written kind of down the line through parental reproduction but actually could be rewritten across and between individuals. Not only have we started to kind of lose our ability to draw such fine lines between species, we're even starting to you know, lose the concept of an individual at all. Uh, we know, in fact, now that we are not singular atomic individuals, but we are ourselves kind of walking multi-species assemblies. And the language of binariness just doesn't hold at almost any level, at the individual level, at the species level, at the planetary level. And so to continue to build our machines through which we categorize, understand, and think the world in a binary model doesn't work anymore and requires total rethinking. And that's where the non-binary kind of requirement comes in. And finally is the, the, the unknowing. Um, the unknowing is a way of thinking the world without seeking to know it in this form of, of domination and control. Um, that's deeply rooted in enlightenment ideas uh, and also in, in much of science. The, the, the ways we have of knowing the world destroy the world, whether that's our kind of colonialist, imperialist ways of kind of overruling non-Western cultures with a kind of Western way of viewing and understanding them, whether it's the scientific practice of kind of splitting everything down into its kind of component parts and understanding the world mechanically. It literally destroys it as a process of knowing it and comes to kind of dominate and rule what remains. And so we need another way of thinking about the world, another way of, of coming into understanding agreement, becoming with it, that doesn't depend on knowing it in this kind of destructive, domineering way. And that's why I talk about unknowing. Unknowing is not the same as ignorance. Uh, it's not a, a blindness to the world, but it's a refusal to project our own forms of thinking directly onto it in a way that obscure its actual reality. I mean, for me, when I was reading 
you talk about unknowing, it also evoked this sense of the importance of embracing mystery, which is a foundation in so many spiritual and mystical traditions and ways of being, the unknowable that, that creates awe and humbleness about how we relate to the world. And you don't speak about the spiritual or mystical side directly, but it seems to be like an under underlying theme that's going through your book, that the spiritual side of needing to see how we relate to the world, these relationships and technologies might need to be spiritual as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I've that I think about a lot and, and struggle to, to write about. But let, let me maybe use the example to get to my own experience of someone who I think you've, I don't know if you had them on the show before, or certainly mentioned them before, which is Monica Galliano, uh, whose work was hugely kind of influential to me in, in understanding many things, but particularly in the fact that it's possible to approach a an understanding with the world through multiple ways of understanding it, multiple approaches, uh, to wit, the fact that her experiments in existence of plant memory are rigorous scientific experiments that she designed according to the scientific method that allow her to make these extraordinary, powerful and persuasive claims about the abilities of plants to remember and to do all kinds of other extraordinary things. And they're constructed in such a way that they fit within the scientific method. They're reproducible, um, they're peer-reviewed and all this kind of stuff. Um, but she's also very explicit about the fact that she has a shamanic practice um, and had spiritual communication with the plants as well. And that this informed her ability to communicate with the plants in order to prepare them and work with them on the kind of scientific side. And I too have had encounters with plant spirits uh, through the use of ayahuasca that deeply informed this writing. And I'm really, but even I struggle to, to bring those different ways of thinking and knowing together. I mean, that's a huge part, I think, of what I'm doing in the book is finding a way within some of the discourses that I'm more familiar with and that I'm more comfortable writing in. And that also I think a lot of other people might be able to follow more clearly. Um, that also expresses what I consider to be the deep interconnectedness of everything on an entirely different dimensional level. That is absolutely fundamental to what I understand. But I've come to it, like Galliano, along these multiple paths. I come to it through a open spiritual encounter with the world around me. And I also come to it through thinking through these kind of deeply human, technological models of thinking the world. To me, they point towards the same thing. And for me, that kind of strengthens or empowers both approaches in a really powerful way, that you, you come to a lot of the same conclusions about our relationship with the world if you think deeply along any one of these lines. But the fact that they all converge um, seems to me to be like the most powerful quality that they have. Towards the end of the book, you write about solidarity, uh, which you describe as that form of politics which best describes a yearning towards entanglement to the mutual benefit of all parties and sets itself against division and hierarchy that we must declare solidarity with the more-than-human world, and that solidarity is a product of imagination as well as of action. What does solidarity with the more-than-human world look like to you? It looks like the awareness and care and attention that I've been kind of maybe hinting at throughout this conversation. Um, first of all, it applies a deep, deep equality. Um, it says that there is no justification, no place for any kind of human superiority in our relationships. But crucially, what solidarity does for me is it also requires, it removes the requirement for knowing 
in all the dangerous ways I've, I've been describing. There's, there's what I think is a common understanding that it's only possible to really care for things that one understands uh, on some kind of deep level. I think this is, um, um, this is, this is related to what I to be the kind of failure of, of human empathy. Um, the fact that uh, we are only really capable of caring deeply, it seems quite often, for quite a close, narrow circle. And even those people who are far away from us in distance or in cultural experience, we seem as a society to find it harder to care for them because we cannot imagine ourselves into their experience. It is deeply necessary for us to care and to, to think with all forms of being who um, we cannot imagine ourselves into. This is, this is part of the unknowing that I was talking about earlier because it's impossible for us to, to know what is like to be so many other forms of being. And yet we have the same goals in mind, which is surviving and thriving on this planet. Uh, and we share this world. These are the lessons that I draw from my understanding of the kind of extraordinary abilities and life worlds of, of non-human beings, is that as much as our worlds differ radically, we share a world. Right? We inhabit the same world as all of these non-human creatures. That is our, our deep and shared connection. Um, and for me, it is necessary once we start to acknowledge the reality and the agency of non-humans, um, as, as we've always struggled to acknowledge the agency of, and, and beinghood of, of many humans, it is necessary to build a politics that enfolds all of that. Right? And by politics, more broadly, I mean like the ability to think and make decisions together for our, hopefully for our common benefit. And the politic that best fits that for me is this idea of solidarity, which simply starts from the position that you, unknowable you, unknowably incredibly different you who I can, um, cannot imagine, I still care for you and value you and think you are as important and that I will stand with you. That for me is at the heart of solidarity. It's a simple acknowledgement of the value of all forms of life and of our common shared goals um, that, um, that have to lie at the heart of any movement towards a more just and equal world. And solidarity now means ecological politics just as much as it means ecological technology, right? There's a demand for that, to, to embrace the more than human in the political system and the technological system that we're being thrown towards realizing. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, there's just no meaning to having a, a discussion about changing technological systems, changing political systems without the acknowledgement that we have to include more than humans into those arrangements um, because that that is the that's the absolute necessary step beyond acknowledging that humans are not the only game in town that human supremacism is 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 has to be done with we have to work then how we go on together what how do we make decisions together in the book i explore quite extensively the the world of non-human politics in all its forms i look at the ways in which non-human animals do politics within their own societies, whether that's the kind of decision-making processes of, of herds of deer, whether it's the, the ways in which bees perform a form of kind of direct democracy to make decisions within their hives. The waggle dance, yeah. The waggle dance, exactly. You know, this incredible, incredibly complex way of communicating information that allows a large group to make a decision that is also an incredibly optimal 
decision-making strategy to bring as many different points of view to bear upon a, upon a practice. There's all these ways in which animals do politics. And there's all these other ways in which animals, uh, non-humans, have done that politics in relation to humans over time. I look at medieval animal trials when we early examples of having non-humans within the human justice system. Um, I look at the history of animals within captivity and the ways in which they demonstrate their politics through resistance to that captivity. And so if we're beginning to acknowledge the fact that non-humans have all of this agency and that they do politics in all kinds of ways, then we have to develop a politics that includes them. I think that's absolutely necessary. Um, it's 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 the absolute kind of foundation for any kind of ecological justice and um, collective future flourishing. Um, if we don't put non-humans on the same level as humans within our decision-making processes, then, th then all of that is meaningless. It's an absolutely fundamental step towards, towards a, a brighter future is a more-than-human politics um, that is, is as broad and inclusive as we can possibly imagine and probably more so. Mm. I have just one last question for you, James, and that's about optimism and hope, which you wrote about in one of your latest blog posts, which you titled, Hope Needs a Place to Perch, and where you talk about how optimism, pessimism, hope, and despair are not useful ways of thinking about the present crisis. So talk to me about this and what hope needing a place to perch means. Yeah, it's nice that you've picked up on that because it's something that I'm still thinking through and trying to, trying, to, trying to understand myself. The book that I mentioned earlier, New Dark Age, that concentrated on technology, included quite a section on, on climate, included a chapter on this kind of the climatic implications of, of, of high technology. And I learned a lot in writing that, a lot of things that terrified me to be completely honest. And, and it, struck, it seemed to strike a chord with readers as well. It's something that gets cited back to me quite a lot. So a lot of the work that I've been doing ever since has been a process of addressing and attempting to understand and deal with my own climate grief and trauma, which I know to be entirely real things because I have experienced them and I continue to experience them in, in all kinds of ways. And so part of this book was looking for ways through that ways of understanding that. The thing that I refer to a lot in, in both books is this concept of agency. Um, agency for me is the ability to know where one is, to understand one's own position, to have one's own capabilities, and to have the ability to affect and change one's own life in as broad a range of possible ways of thinking as possible. It's something that is under huge pressure for most of us. It's something that is taken away from us actively in many, many ways and something that we struggle to realize in so many ways. And the crisis of agency in the present moment, um, which is an effect of uh, kind of capitalist systems of control, it's an effect of the kinds of technology and the systems we have to engage with all the time that limit us in so many ways. I feel that that loss of agency, the collapse of kind of political consensus and, and meaningful politics at a kind of state or global level, the horror that strikes us and our sense of fear and anger that results, that being the kind of dominant tenor of the world today, is a result of that loss of agency. So how do you rebuild that agency? For me, I do it through doing what I do, which is trying to think and understand about things in the world um, by, by learning about things and hopefully listening, paying attention to the world around me, putting some of these ideas together. Those, for me, are a way of rebuilding agency, and that's my response to kind of climate 
trauma and grief as well, it turns out. It's been the most effective thing for me. A good example of that is, you know, a few years ago, I started tinkering around with um, solar panels. Um, really, really simple stuff, just learning to wire them up and so forth, going back to the kind of basic electronics. But I discovered within that um, the same expansion of agency that I did when I first started tinkering with computers, that I felt I had an agency within this complex system. Now, I don't think solar panels alone are going to save us or anything like that, but I felt for the first time that I was engaging with something that mattered within this complex environmental ecological system that up to that point had only been something that was essentially oppressing me, frightening me, worrying me and kind of knocking me down. And that work has continued through all kinds of making. I spend a lot of my time now working on kind of forms of really simple regenerative technology, things like permaculture, um, these kind of things that I do in part because I think they will help in some kind of, you know, abstruse way. I think that's, you know, that is the least one can do but also because they are psychologically comforting in the sense that they build my sense of agency. And without that sense of agency, we're incapable of doing anything at all. And that is the place that hope needs to perch on, that I'm, that I'm trying to articulate there. That, that hope without any foundation of actual agency, any thinking, any knowledge, any ability to make or do change in various ways is, is a meaningless thing like optimism they're not quite the same thing but but for me they're closely related in this idea that they're just they're just words without some kind of basis of action um, and that action can be as simple as building a little wooden box in your garden to purify water which is something that i've been doing this week or it can be as, as big as developing computer programs to analyze satellite photographs or whatever it is it doesn't have to be the one piece that will save the world but it definitely has to be something that increases one's own psychological sense of ability to make change that is a prerequisite for any other kind of hope or optimism that we might face. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, James. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. This December, Emergence Magazine is doing something different. I'm bringing a special immersive exhibition exploring the theme of shifting landscapes to the Barge House, a dynamic multi-story industrial exhibition space in the heart of London for a limited 10-day only run. With immersive works from nine artists, including brand new work from the acclaimed art collective Marshmallow Laser Feast, along with a series of special events, this exhibition invites you to open your imagination or entanglement with the biosphere and explore our shifting landscapes. Find out more and reserve your free tickets at emergencemagazine.org forward slash London Exhibition. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by Logan Stanley and H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Erica Neininger and produced by Shauna Quinn and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, with writing by Lucy Warmold. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org. <laughs>